Pete Johansson. Hello. I pronounced it right, right? Uh, I don't care. Most people are very particular. I know. I've never understood that. I don't think anybody cares what my name is, man. What about the rest <laughs> of your family? Does your mother care? I don't know. I've never really asked her. I don't really call her by her last name. <laughs> it's one of those weird things where I don't really use my last name that much and other people use it. Nah, whatever makes them feel comfortable. Some people, over here, a lot of people like Johansson, yeah. which is weird. And then other people back in North America, they're like Johansson because they're not familiar with that soft J sound. And then uh, other people just call me Joe Handsome. Oh. Uh, yeah, huh? Take a long time. You never considered gander. that as like a stage name? No. I've never thought about a stage name because I've never thought of being memorable. <laughs> okay. I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from yesyesmarsha.com. And this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long form interviews with stand up comedians that eventually inspired the book. Off the Mic, the world's best stand-up comedians get serious about comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. You just came back from Amsterdam, right? Yes, I... How do you... What? That's crazy. (laughs) You got a better memory than me. Yeah, I came back two days ago. How was it? I did a lot of things over there that I am actually very proud of. Yeah, I took all my clothes off and bartended for two hours. Did you really? Yes, I did. At Tumler's, I was naked behind the... I didn't know this until I was in my iPhone the other day, and there's pictures of me doing it. Yeah, I don't remember taking pictures with my iPhone of me, but I was naked behind the door, and I invented a new drink, vodka, tequila, and absinthe with a spoonful of sugar. Tell me that doesn't taste like heaven. (laughs) Huh? That sounds dangerous. Uh, it was. That's why I don't remember the pictures. Right. But I made a couple of those, and then I topped it off with a little champagne. Yeah, good headache the next day. Fun but it time. was a fun trip. Oh, yeah. I love the Dutch. The Dutch are my crowd for some bizarre reason. They, are they? They really, really like what I do as a comic, which is, I guess, a strange but beautiful compliment. Famously, they're pretty cool. I mean, everyone likes the yeah, Dutch, don't they? Yeah, but I'm really cool to the Dutch. Like, I'm <laughs> like a poster child for coolness when it comes to Dutch people. So if you're the poster child to the coolest people, uh-huh. that makes you... No place else to go. I've hit the, the glass <laughs> yeah. ceiling if I was a chick, eh? No, there's more room because I'm a guy. <laughs> you're living in the UK right now, Yes, right? yes. You're from Canada, though. Yes. You grew up there. We lived in the States for a couple of years when I was a kid, and my dad woke us up when I was five when we were living just across the border in the States. And he woke us up at four in the morning and said, we're moving to Canada because we were owed money to the IRS. So, yeah, we had that brief stint in the States. But uh, wasn't your dad really famous? Yeah. He's a hockey player. Yeah, right? but I don't think that makes famous here. No, but in, in <laughs> North pretty, America. It'd be like a famous cricket player back home. <laughs> in North America, that was a really big deal. Yeah, yeah. Right? He won the, in Canada particularly, he won the Stanley Cup with the Detroit Red Wings in 53-54. Uh, so his name's on the Stanley Cup, which is about the biggest thing you could possibly do in Canada for fame, really. But I don't like my dad that much. We don't get along, so I don't even know how to skate. But yeah. as a kid in school, people were like, hey, your dad's... The... I never told anybody. Did you not? No, I tried not to... must t- have found out. Uh, some people did, but I, you know, I just, I don't tell people about a lot of stuff in my life because I find it irritating when I, people, like, talk to me. I'm not that social until I get to know people. And, and my brother's quite well known, too, and I never talk about that either. Yeah, he's an actor, right? Yeah. And he's a bit older than you. He's a lot older. Yeah. A lot. So was you getting into stand-up any kind of, you know, the family have set the bar high for going and doing I didn't even, I was The only reason I got into stand-up was because of Sam Kinison. I listened to his tape when I was 14 years old, and I never heard somebody talk about religion so honestly in my entire life. And I said, I got to do this. I didn't really think about what my family... And you were still at school when you started, Oh, yeah, I started when you? I was in high school, yeah. I missed and, my prom. I don't know if they have prom. Well, proms here mean an orchestra in the park, right? No, but we've seen <laughs> enough American films. Yeah, well, yeah, I missed my high school prom to do my first paid gig. And I stood up my date, which 
which is just evil. Whoa. Oh, she hates me. I tried to add her on Facebook about four weeks ago, thinking maybe she would have gotten over it. I'm still just waiting for the friend okay, you know? <laughs> and you can tell that like, she's added tons more friends. Like, uh, all right, that's not going to happen. We <laughs> ladies don't forget that stuff. No, no, especially after you buy a dress and everything like that and hire a limo. <laughs> You've pretty much ruined <laughs> one of the benchmarks of her life. Yeah, maybe, but I wasn't that good looking, so I didn't think it was that big a deal, you know? If an ugly guy stands you up, isn't that like a pass or something? No, but then uh, did she just have to not go? Or she probably had oh, to go she by went. herself? She went. She got hammered, and I think my friend did her. Oh, really? So, yeah, it all worked out okay. <laughs> I mean, she got boned right. And he's presumably thanked you for that. Uh, he never did, come to think of it, but he did add me on Facebook. Okay, that was his way. <laughs> yeah. So what was the first stand-up stuff you did? You were 17 years old. Yeah, I mainly talked about religion, and I was a very poor mimic of Sam Kinison with the life experience that a 16-year-old high school kid would have in Canada. It was pretty awful, actually. I'd get drunk, and I'd basically swear into a microphone thinking it was funny. Then I discovered dry comedy. I discovered a guy named Drake Sather. Uh, he was this uh, really dry Seattle comic, him and Jeff Stilson, and they wrote these little short bits. I still remember some of Jeff Stilson's stuff. Like, uh, there's a fine line that decrees the difference between making eye contact with the girl and the piercing stare of a psychopath. And I always remembered, I thought that was just such a brilliant short line, you know? Or Drake Sather's, it's a small world, but you still wouldn't want it shoved up your ass. Just little things like that that when I was a kid, I thought was, oh, this is brilliant. Look at this. So I started trying to write short jokes like that, and I just became a joke smith when I started for the longest time. So I had no personality. I just stood in the mic and I just read my jokes. And that didn't do very well either for years. Oh, did it not? I did okay. I was actually fairly astute. Everybody told me to quit comedy and just sell my jokes. Um, which is kind of a compliment when you think about it because you're writing well enough that other comics want your jokes, but they just think you're just abysmal on stage. And then uh, I just kept doing it, just like everything else. What's the Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours rule? Yeah. Did you put <laughs> yeah. in your 10,000 hours? Yeah. My outliers factor. Strangely, I was born in the end of the year, though, so you know the January comics do so much better. What's the thing? You got signed to Warner yeah. Brothers. Well, about age 23, I had put together enough material, and I moved to Montreal, Canada, and I was there because I wanted to do the, in the Montreal Comedy Festival. And at that time, their scouts didn't really leave Eastern Canada, and I realized they'd never see me, so I moved there in order to get the festival. You were living before in... Vancouver, Canada. And uh, I lived in Los Angeles for about eight months before that, too. But that's a whole new drugs phase of my life that I got through. Um, so I went over to Montreal, and I lived there for a year, and I got into the smallest show in the uh, Montreal Comedy Festival called The Montreal Show. It was just a little tiny show, and I got six minutes on it, and uh, I did my show. And my rent was three months late. My phone got cut off. And I had no money, and the next morning, uh, this guy calls me and goes, hey, do you have a manager? I go, no, I don't. He goes, do you want one? I go, okay. And then he signed me as manager, and then we went out for lunch, and then after I signed and everything, goes, hey, I got Warner Brothers wants to sign you to a deal. <laughs> I'm like, really? You couldn't have told me this before you signed me? I just lost 15%. So I signed a development deal with Warner Brothers, and then I moved to the States, and I had deals with HBO, Castle Rock, Fox. You know, and what do these mean, these deals? They mean they pay you a lot of money not to do anything so that you don't work for anybody else. That's what I found out they meant. But at the time, I thought it meant, oh, I'm going to be famous. But no, in fact, you just got a lot of money to not really do that much. But you still did some stuff. You did NBC's Friday Night? Yeah, I did Friday Night. I did Late Late Show with Craig Kilborn. I did various late shows like Premium Blend for Comedy Central. All the little stand-up-y shows. And then I started an independent movie, which was kind of cool. But then I haven't watched it in years. And I watched it the other day, and I realized why I never worked again. Because every scene, my mouth's open. For no reason at all, I'm like... 
And like every fucking scene through the entire movie. Why did nobody tell me to shut my mouth? I look like an idiot. But you have done other acting since then. Yeah, I've done a couple of. You did a things. film with James Caan and. Yeah, 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 but that's a little bit cheating because my brother directed it. James Caan and Jenna Rollins uh, called The Incredible Mrs. Ritchie, which is a story based upon our childhood. So he thought it would be apropos that he put me in at the fattest period of my life. But have you got aspirations to doing that kind of no. thing, doing acting stuff? No. No. Okay. No, I, I I guess I should. No, I, I I mean, yeah, if I'm acting me. This is my problem with the whole L.A. kind of comedy thing like that is because I got all these things where they told me, oh, we love you. We think you're fantastic. And then you get there and you go, you are great. Could you be this person? And it kept wanting me to be somebody that I wasn't. Like, I'd be reading for roles that I didn't have anything. Well, how, how am I a banker? You know, and so they keep pushing you in all these other stuff. But the entire time you thought, I thought you liked me. Did you live in L.A.? Yeah, I lived there for a little bit. You were doing comedy stuff there. Yeah, that's where I started touring in the States. We had um, Gina Yeshere on this a few weeks ago, and she's just moved to L.A. And she was saying the stand-ups there are generally <laughs> actors doing monologues and that they're dreadful. Oh, they're awful. The worst stand-up comedy in the world is in Los Angeles, California. And it's no great prize to say you work there on any level. I mean, to become a regular at the improv is kind of a big deal, but the comedy store is a piece of shit. Uh, not the one here in London. It's fantastic. But the one in Los Angeles is just this dreadful uh, hole of misery. <laughs> That'll keep me from getting booked. The Laugh Factory is kind of the middle of the road sort of thing. It's you know good and bad for who it is. But overall, all the other rooms, other than um, UCB, which is fantastic, it really isn't good stand-up in Los Angeles. But presumably, if you're working there as a stand-up and you are genuinely good, do you do very well within LA? Is it not the case that you no. turn up and people go, it's someone who can well, actually that, do well, this? Well, the fame concept is actually an undercut. I mean, we all saw what happened to Kramer years ago when he melted down or Michael Richards. I used to follow him constantly at the improv and the crowd would go nuts when he walked on stage. But he's abysmal, like of such a bad comic that people lost their love for him for the rest of their life in their experiences that they watch. And then you go on after him and you do stand-up and they'd be so happy that somebody actually was knew how to do it. So it's actually, it was a counter-indicory. Some comics were great, of course. Jim Carrey dropped down once and just buried me. <laughs> yeah. Seinfeld always did good stuff. Chris Rock works hard, always writing new material, but doesn't always do well. You'd get that. In the fame instance, it makes the crowd love you for three or four minutes, but then it dissipates. But I mean, isn't that good for you if you're living in LA and if you're working as a stand-up there, that it means that because the bar is set so low by everyone else? Eh... Not really. I don't think so. It comes down to the cult of popularity mixed with PR, mixed with luck, mixed with nepotism. There's no equal formula that really makes sense because there's some brilliant, amazing American comics that cannot move forward. Dave Crow, Richard Hawkins, these guys should be household names, but they're not because they're not connected in the right ways. And they're amongst the most brilliant comics on the planet. And so the system that they have in place right now is one of popularity and nepotistic advancement. And that's good for the people that know how to work that. And they're very talented. And that's a skill set. But it doesn't necessarily find the United States the best comedians. And the worst thing that's ever happened is this uh, Last Comic Standing, which is just a producer-based sort of pocket of who's connected, which management companies are pushing who. And it's awful. This is the thing that's like the X factor for comedians. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's just the worst thing that's ever happened to comedy in the entire planet, in my opinion. Oh, actually, evening at the improvs in the 80s were pretty bad because they destroyed the entire comedy industry because it was an oversaturation of mediocre comedy that lowered everybody's expectations of comedy, which is what the show I was just talking about, Last Comic Standing, has done. Because everybody watches it and goes, this is the funniest comics in America? And then they go, ah, maybe I won't go down to the club. It just lowers everybody's expectations because there's brilliant comics out there that aren't so hamstrung, A, by censorship, B, by management, C, by the idea that they're looking for somebody that's going to morph into acting from the comedy role, whereas the great comics don't necessarily morph into acting. Look at Louis C.K. He did a brilliant sitcom that didn't get picked up and live, but he's amazing stand-up. And why morph him out of that? Be a famous fucking stand-up. That's what he should be. He should be a household name for his stand-up. So why are we trying to push these people into family situations? 
reasons. Do you think it's because <laughs> TV people think that people are afraid of stand-up? TV people have no imagination. That's their problem. They, all they are is they fail upwards in an industry that rewards sort of just following the line. And that's what happens in agencies and industries. Everybody that's cautious moves forward. This is probably a bad thing for me to be talking about. <laughs> I just, I just love stand-up. I think stand-up is beautiful. I love watching great stand-ups, people that are brilliant, that take chances, that you know, that understand the subtle art of timing. And there's so many great stand-ups up there. It just it moves me when I get to see them. And I hate watching them being pushed out of their element. And I think it's by an industry that doesn't truly understand it and doesn't understand how to monetarily capitalize on it in a form that makes them feel comfortable. Well, I think there's little bits where it seems to seep through. Certainly in yeah. the UK, you've got Michael McIntyre's That's why I'm here. And... I think the UK is fantastic for it. The UK is not what I've just been talking about, by the way. I'm talking about the United States, which is a cancer upon stand-up. The, the UK is actually amongst the most brilliant and erudite audiences you'll ever experience in your entire life. People that actually have an understanding of the art, which you don't experience when you go to Tulsa. You just you don't feel that anywhere in the U.S. Even in New York and Los Angeles, where they're supposed to be sophisticated, they're actually not. Really? Yes, they're caught up in the cult of personality rather than the actual content of the artist. I look at some of the brilliant actors; they wouldn't work over there because nobody has the fucking attention span to follow them. In terms of the audience, well, if you don't get to the funny in forty-five seconds, they've already fallen asleep and ordered the next drink. Really? Yeah, they don't have that attention span in North America. Even Canada, I have to say, to a certain degree, you have to shorten your jokes. But here, you, the audience is with you. They want to laugh. They'll go with you on a journey. It's heaven. Have you had any super weird experiences in little kind of back of beyond America? Oh, yeah. I've been threatened with death. I was talking about Jesus on stage in, uh, where was it, Knoxville, Tennessee. And I thought how he was a poor choice of a deity over Thor. Talking about the benefits of if we started worshiping Thor. And I had these, that, you're blaspheming. You're And like about 13 people got up and left the room. And the guy, you're dead. You're dead, motherfucker. And I'm like, really? This is Jesus's word? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I had to wait inside until like police came and helped me leave the place. They they get really upset over, rather than they disagree, they want to hurt you. Wow. You know? And that's that fear. That's that toxifies the southern U.S. I don't sound like a, uh, yeah. We should talk about something happier. All of this <laughs> stuff is what is presumably what prompted you to want to move to the U.S. When did you come to the UK? Actually, that's not what made me move to the UK. I came here to visit a friend who got kicked out of his place, and uh, <laughs> I needed to find a place to stay, and I ran out of money. So uh, I did a gig for him, and from that, I got offered a couple other things, just some showcase spots, and then I got offered a ton of work, and then my wife got offered a modeling gig over here. And then at the same time, I lost a TV hosting job almost instantly. She goes, why don't we move to the UK? So the very next day from her saying that, I packed all of our stuff and we just came over here on a whim. Wow. Yeah. To London. Yeah. And how long ago is that? A year and a half ago. So not that year, long. A year ago. And how's it been? It's been really good. I've only had a week off, so I guess that's good. And uh, yeah, I've been traveling the world. I have no way to judge it. I don't know what good is, but I seem to be working all the time and people seem to like me. Well, I guess if you're happy and you're making a living from it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. All that stuff's good. I really enjoy doing stand-up. So, and I get to do it a lot. So that's how I judge. So I guess I'm doing great. Yeah. So you've just mentioned you've been doing gigs all over the world. You've gone to some nuts places. I mean, you mentioned Amsterdam, you've done Europe and stuff, but you went to Japan. I did. I went to Japan. I went to Korea. I went to Guam. I've been to Afghanistan. Wait, wait, wait. Hold off on the Afghanistan. I'm going to come back to that. Where's Guam? Guam is a little island just south of Saipan where all the sweatshops are just off the Philippines, which I've also been to. Uh, it's just an awful island where, well, it's not awful. It's a paradise, but oh, this is the first time I ever experienced uh, Polynesian time, which is any time that they reference, hey, I'll be there in an hour, doesn't mean anything. I'll be there in two minutes. Like, there's no way to do anything. Like, the buses don't show up. 
oh, it's really weird, you know? So how do you do a gig? Like, what time do you, how do you know when you, to start? You chance it. And nobody cares either when you're really late. Like, oh, yeah, the car didn't show up to pick us up. Yeah, that'll happen. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> how did you get here? Uh, yeah, I walked. Oh, yeah, it's a good solution. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> how are the audiences? I'm pretty laid back. Yeah, it was mainly tourists, and uh, it was a very weird experience, you know, but it was cool. <laughs> and are there any of these gigs where you're speaking mostly not to expats? Uh, well, you do get the odd mixture. I mean, the in the Philippines, there's a lot of Filipinos, but they were thrown off by the creepy old white guys that moved there for sex. Too many guys look like Gary Glitter in that crowd to make me feel comfortable with their just super young wives and just... <laughs> you <laughs> just, just have to... Oh, yeah. I actually addressed it in my show, and it kind of like, this is just creepy. Like, how many of you guys have warm? out. How did they react? <laughs> they can only laugh. What are they going to do? Act offended? <laughs> you probably do something bad. <laughs> so Afghanistan, mm -hmm. you went there twice. I went once for the Canadian Armed Forces and once for the U.S. Armed Forces. And you got shot at the first time. Yeah, the first time, yeah. So explain the situation when it's happening, if you're well, unaware you don't know of it. what's going on. You can't tell. You're in a helicopter. You can't hear a guy shooting a gun on the ground. All we noticed was the helicopter banking going sideways, pulling a tight turn, and then the uh, machine gun on the side going off, which we just thought was them testing the weapons to make sure they worked for the flight. And so I was reaching for my video camera. This is cool. And then we went low, and we were hugging the earth, and then we had Apache helicopters in the front and back for our cover, and they had gone off, and they were firing and firing and firing, and then they, one of them stayed with us, and then we landed about 20 minutes later, and they go, we got to do a debriefing for any contact. Did you see anything? What did you see? I saw trees. <laughs> I, mean, I didn't see anything. And like, uh, do you see the enemy or anything like that? I go, what, what are you talking about? Like, we had no idea what happened. Neither of us saw it. Because we, we weren't looking at what they were shooting at. We were looking at the gun that was shooting, because we had never seen a machine gun like that shoot. <laughs> so at that point, did you think, why am I here? No, that wasn't the scariest thing. The two other things were way scarier than that, because that was obliviousness. That was absolute naivety. The drive from Kabul to uh, Camp Eagle in from Bravo to Kabul was terrifying because there was a tanker that looked just like a movie, had derailed and pushed off. It almost looked like a setup for an ambush. And we were going like 80 miles an hour. And I go, are we slowing down for this? And the guy goes, fuck no. And he pulls left. And they already told us, if you go off the pavement, that's when you're at risk of IEDs exploding. And I'm like, why are we going off the pavement? And this convoy of us, and there's people on the road. And they had to literally jump out of the way of our vehicles, which was just terrifying. And just flowed through there. And uh, that was the first time that was scary. And then the second one was where we were boarding our plane. Uh, the airfield was getting shelled. Just really inaccurate rockets that the Taliban fires. And they just, they land uh, willy-nilly. And uh, we were just getting on the plane and the sirens go off and we had to run to these bunkers. And you could hear them exploding. And I was like, ah. And so, you know, that was actually scary, that part. Now, there's a lot of comedians, you know, I've spoken to comedians who go out there. We had Rudy Liquid on the podcast last week who was saying he's anti-war, but he mm -hmm. went out and did a lot of gigs for the troops because he feels like you should know what you're talking about. And he did anti-war stuff on his other. the soldiers don't make the policy. But you won't go to Iraq. No, I won't. You've been asked to, right? Yeah, I was. I was asked by the same people, uh, the American forces, I won't go to, because I'm Canadian, and my country abstained from Iraq. It was our choice, and we got punished aggressively by the United States for making that choice of saying that we didn't see any proof or reason following 9-11 to go into that. I agree that Saddam Hussein's an awful leader and everything like that, but I think that was a clusterfuck. You know, and morally, I, I can't get behind that. Afghanistan makes sense to me. My country's involved in that. 
Uh, Canada is a participant in Afghanistan. I see a reason. I've met Afghan people that need it. And I understand that the Iraqis needed that too, by the way. They needed to be saved from Saddam. But the way we went about it, I don't think was the right way. Killing 440,000 innocent people might not be the smoothest of transitions. But I absolutely, I don't have any hard feelings against the soldiers or anything like that. In fact, I respect all soldiers regardlessly because I can't imagine the courage and fortitude it takes to follow orders. And again, they don't make the orders. It's the people on top. Um, This is a bit of a handbrake turn of question I want to ask you. You wanted to start a cult. Yeah. Why not, man? Whatever happened to this? I stopped doing it because it's too hard. Well, I was trying to find tax loopholes in the U.S. and Canada so I didn't have to pay as much tax as I was paying. And one of the ways around that is religious organizations, but you have to have a certain amount of followers, but you have to also have a dogmatic belief that's clearly defined for people to join into. And at the same point, I thought, why not join a cult of atheistic ideals that stand outside of the... And not being an atheist, I'm more of an agnostic, but I am an atheist. I actually am an atheist. But nonetheless, I just don't believe in God. Um, but it's something that explores a constant sort of philosophical sort of uh, journey rather than a, a dogmatic, systematic sort of law locked in, in iron belief. Um, and I haven't seen any cults like that, you know, and something that really might get me laid. So these were all things I was trying to blend into one sort of tax-free device. It didn't play out as well. I'm not good looking enough to lead a cult. That's what it is. You got to be in shape. All the guys that lead cults are in shape. That's the key, man. Or they have good drugs. I don't have either. So you're, you're going to Edinburgh? Yeah, yeah, To the festival. Have you been before? Oh, I've been to Edinburgh. What a beautiful city, I might add. It's like a Dungeons and Dragons set. It's awesome. I like it. Gorgeous. And the people are quite nice, too. But you've never... Never um, performed. ...been no. at the festival. Because it's kind of most people who go for the first time are relatively new to comedy, but you've been doing it since you were 17 years old. I wouldn't Very use that as a... In as some sort of classification of quality, though. I mean, well, I mean, you, you've done a lot of telly in North America, as we discussed. Yeah, yeah. You've been all around the world on gigs, yeah, yeah, and so, so how are you feeling about it? Have you been there during the festival before? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I watched my buddy uh, Glenn Wool's show last year, who I, I love, and I'm going to catch again this year. He's a fantastic actor. But so you have a sense of what it's like there? Yeah, but uh, kinda. I'm still freaked out by the fact that you don't have an opening act. That still bothers me. There's nobody's going to introduce me to this moment. That freaks me out, but I guess I'll be okay with it because something will happen, I'm sure. And also, I, I just assume nobody's going to show up. No matter how funny I am or whatever, it just seems like an exercise in the quality of marketing to a certain degree. And I'm not a brilliant marketer. I've never really known what makes people like me at all. Ask the girls I've dated. I've never had some quantitative quality of what makes me funny or whatever. But I do well all the time. But I don't know why, so I don't know how to write that on a piece of paper. Hey, what makes you funny? I don't know exactly. How do you fucking classify yourself? It's the most complicated thing in the world, and I've never found anybody else that really said it does it that crisply. So I don't know. I think my marketing's good, though, by the way. My team's great. I got a great team. But at the same point, it's my first year. Nobody really knows me. I've only been here a year, you know? I was thinking I should murder somebody. Like, maybe Robin Williams. Wouldn't that be kind of cool? But then you'll be in prison. You won't be able to see the show. Okay, not murder. Assault. You know, right. <laughs> aggressively assault. Then what happens is the entire month they're having extradition hearing for me, which is kind of a cool situation because I'm in the news every day how the extradition's going on. But then would you be allowed to do the show? Mm, I don't know. I'd think so. Maybe ankle bracelets. Do they have those here? We could sort that out. Or you could just sleep with someone famous. I know you've got a wife. So. I have. We'll work something out. We'll come up with some kind of publicity. <laughs> you could pretend to murder. I could pretend to die. We could have some kind of, or like I think GBH. you're just going off on a depressive sort of state <laughs> right now. Okay, tell Do me you about your... GBH or GHB? GBH. GHB is the drug, isn't it? Well, it's GBH Grievous then? bodily harm. It's oh, like a... I, see, I thought you were talking about GHB. <laughs> it's like I can pretend to be dead with GHB. It's like a newfound Romeo and Juliet where I'm just in a fucking drug coma for a week. What's your show about? <laughs> 
The official line is, it's about my dealing with getting older and sort of understanding my transition, but being comfortable with it, or what I like to call happy apathy or apathy. There's strong chunks of comedy that are melded together with a through line about my evolution into a man, at the same time finding love and becoming comfortable in the fact that I'm disgusting. Disgusting in what way? Mm. I'll show you the pictures from me nude bartender. Okay. Um, <laughs> one more thing. Your wife has made you go vegetarian. Yeah. Also, post-Amsterdam, am I right in thinking you've given up smoking, drinking? Quit drinking on Saturday night, and I'm not going to drink for Edinburgh. And then I uh, quit smoking on uh, Friday night, and I quit smoking weed, but that's not going to last the entire festival. I'm just going to see how I'm doing for the first three weeks, and then if I need it, I'll have some weed. But uh, only legal weed if you're the police. Just before <laughs> the Edinburgh Festival, your first ever one, seems an odd time to give up all this stuff. I've done it before. For every other festival I've done, I've done Just for Last Festival five times in my life, and before every time, at the beginning of the festival, I didn't drink for four of them, and the last one that I did drink at, I've been banned from the festival. Why were you banned? <laughs> I cannot tell you that on the really? air. Really? I cannot. Oh, man. <laughs> but it involves the people that run the festival, me, one of the very, very most powerful agents here in England, and a big bag of drugs. Well, <laughs> I don't want to get you banned from the Edinburgh Festival, <laughs> no. but I found online some things that would suggest that some of these things are good for you. Like what? Smoking. Mm-hmm. Scientists have found evidence that smoking might, in some circumstances, help prevent the onset of various Al dementias. Uh, uh, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, uh, yeah, both yeah. of them. It's the nicotine extract. They actually uh, can derive it also from broccoli leaves and from uh, spinach. So you don't necessarily have to get it through tobacco plant. Okay, drinking heavily. Ethanol reduces the ethyl tendency. Ethyl alcohol, not methyl alcohol. You have to be specific in this because it changes the way the intake absorption of different things. Are we talking about heart disease or are we talking uh, about strokes? We're talking about <laughs> heart disease. Yeah, heart disease it allows for the pliability and absorption through the arteries. Ah, oh, sorry, I love this shit. How do you know all of this? <laughs> I have 20 hours a day of free time for the last 20 years. <laughs> okay, well, shall I carry on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Watching a lot of TV. In what sense? Because there's actually two contrasting arguments about this. It actually shortcuts your neural brain system so that the repetitive refresh rate of the screen actually dulls your senses and lowers your overall, giving you a status of being happy, yet without actually uh, stimulating your intellectual brain or your frontal cortex. It also releases oxytocin that gives you a sense of love and comfort same thing you get from chocolate. That's much, but I just <laughs> had that you use 20% more energy watching TV than lying in bed. Yeah, okay, that's... having unprotected sex. Oh, well, there's lots of different things. Better for the girl, by the way, as long as you're clean. The sperm actually coats the vaginal walls, causing a bunch of different things. First of all, it makes you create more uh, antibodies, white blood cells, so you can fight off infection because of the introduction of a new foreign body. The second, uh, what's the other one that it does? It, um, well, after pregnancy, it helps tighten the vagina, interestingly enough. Uh, the pH of the sperm helps the fuck. Oh, you got me on this one. What's the other one? One more. Apparently, there's something in semen that can alter mood. And... Oh, yeah, yeah. It, cre it releases oxytocin as well. And if you cause a strong enough orgasm, it'll cause the cervix to dip, which releases a grand amount of oxytocin, causing a bonding effect that makes the girl attached to the person they're with. I know we think love is just love, but it actually coming hard makes you fucking like somebody. Okay, I've got two more. <laughs> Using mobile phones. Well, interestingly enough, there's a lot of problems with mobile phones. Uh, if you have a mobile phone next to you while you sleep, the radio frequency actually interferes slightly with your brainwaves, which keeps your dopamine flowing a little heavier than normal, which actually makes it harder for you to sleep if it's too close to your head. There is effects that it has on brain function. But when it comes to focus, let's say if you're talking on a cell phone or even if you have a hands-free set or whatever, you're actually 
taking yourself out of the environment. You're operating on a very basic function, opening yourself up to higher levels of any types of accidents because you're not actually truly focusing, even though you think you are. But to counter that, mm-hmm. they did a test at the Bristol Oncology Centre where they found that people exposed to mobile phone radiation mm-hmm. were 4% faster at certain mental tasks. Imagining those are the same mental tasks that you could accomplish by doing a crossword or Sudoku every day, which is the other thing that they do to sort of stimulate people's mental productions, and they've shown huge amounts in that delaying of onset of Alzheimer and dementia are taken about, I think, 6 and 7% by doing a repetitive sort of intellectual challenge every morning. So would that be better than the 4% you get? And why is an oncology institute, by the way, studying brain response, and that's cancer? <laughs> okay, one more thing. Eating salty food. Hey, what's up? Makes well, it's, puffy. <laughs> it's more, this is a bit of a rubbish one, in that it was saying if you wipe salt out of your diet completely then uh, it'll get very serious. You can get into muscle cramps, nausea, dizziness. Your body should retain the same salinity, basically, of the ocean to a certain degree, because that's what we're sort of primordially evolved from, which is a 0.07%. I can't remember the specific number. But we have to reflect that in the way that we hold water, because our muscles have to be hypotonic and hold on to enough liquid in order to, you know, create function, allow ATP transmission, allow your cells to be well hydrated. You can't function without it. And if you have no salts, there's no reason for the water to stay and you just shed it. I don't even understand everything you just said. You've amazed me with your really? science. I'm an yeah, idiot. no. <laughs> All right. So, Pete, uh, your Edinburgh show is, where is it? It's at the belly button at the Underbelly Cowgate in Edinburgh. I'll be on at 8.45 every evening, and please, for the love of God, buy a ticket, or tell your friends to, or just send me an envelope with some money, because this is going to be an economically devastating month if that doesn't happen. I love you. Okay. And um, <laughs> your website, pjohansson.com. Mm, mm. Can you plug my Facebook fan page? I need okay. to get to 1,000 so badly, because that way I can hold on to my name, and I can argue the guy that has my name that he has to give it back to me, because okay. he's only got 32 friends. And if I get a thousand, there's actual argument. So Facebook fan page is a facebook.com slash comic Pete. Please add me, please, if you'd like this. Or the website Pete Johansson, which is spelled J-O-H-A-N-S-S-O-N dot com. That sounds right. Thanks so much for coming on. (laughs) Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes Yes Marsha.com forward slash off the mic.